Good evening and welcome. Um, tonight we have a wonderful opportunity called Sage on the Stage with my good friend Sue Michaelovitz. Um, this is our hand internet live session developed and presented by the AO North America Hand Education Committee. So tonight our stage on the stage is Sue Michaelovitz. Sue is a PT, PhD, and a fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association. She is an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Regenerative and Rehabilitation Medicine and the Program in Physical Therapy at Columbia University, and she currently lives in Camden, Maine. My name is Becky Nadesky. I serve as the Dean of the School of Health Sciences at Elon University in North Carolina. So without further ado, um, our topic for tonight is building bridges between therapists and surgeons. And as I said, our guest sage is Sue Michaelovitz, physical therapist, Dr. Sue Michaelovitz, and fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association. So let's talk a little bit about Sue before we get started. Um, Sue is a PT and a CHT, a certified hand therapist. She has taught students um, everywhere from Philadelphia all the way into New York, including um, University of Pennsylvania, Hahnemann University, which is now Drexel, Temple University, and Columbia University. Sue and I have volunteered with the Guatemala Healing Hands Foundations and spent many, many times together in the screening room, in the nice warm screening room, seeing children and taking photos and working with our therapy colleagues um, in Guatemala. Sue has um, served as a past president of the American Society of Hand Therapists in 2013. She's been an affiliate board member of the American Association for Hand Surgery. Um, and from 1995 to 2019, she was on the editorial board of the Journal of Hand Therapy. Sue's achievements and contributions have led to these wonderful awards. Um, the American Association for Hand Surgery um, awarded Sue with the Clinician Teacher of the Year in 2003. She was the Natalie Barr Lecturer for the American Society of Hand Therapists in 2008. She became a Fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association in 2018. She received the American, Hand Hand American Society of Hand Therapists Lifetime Fellowship Award in 2019 and became an emeritus, emeritus member of the American Association for Hand Surgery this year in 2020. So I hope you will help me welcome Sue um, as our sage on the stage tonight. So Sue, get us started. Tell us what you want us to know about presenting in Zoom land. It's interesting to be able to have you join me in my living room. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Uh, it's an it's a bit of a challenge for presenters to do something online where there's not an audience. And this morning when I was reading, I found that the Barcelona Opera reopened and they had an audience of plants. So I'm gonna pretend there are a lot of plants out there while I'm speaking with you tonight. <laughs> um, what we're trying to do is share some pearls with you about how we um, work with surgeons and interact with our patients and communicate back with surgeons. So Sue, we're gonna start by talking a little bit about your evolution as a hand therapist. And I think this is such an important topic, especially for the surgeons in the, in the um, audience tonight, to think about the role of the surgeon in the evolution of the hand therapist, but also to understand how we evolve and how we evolve within our own circles and within our own professional organizations. So Sue, can you start by telling us a little bit about your experiences and your insights and thoughts about how hand therapists gain expertise? Yes, and, and first I'd like to start by saying that I'm an outlier percentage-wise in certified hand therapists. About 15% of certified hand therapists are physical therapists and 85% are occupational therapists. So we uh, practice as hand therapy specialists. Um, I became a hand therapist um, 
or interested in hands at my first hospital job in 1973 when I was three years old. And during that time period, there was a surgeon who had just finished his training with Bill Bohr at the University of Pennsylvania. And we had no occupational therapists in the hospital. So we, we learned from each other, basically. And it was a good opportunity uh, to begin my first collaboration with surgeons. I also collaborated with a surgeon who had designed hip and knee uh, implants and was an arthritis surgeon. So I was fortunate to have some experiences that a lot of therapists today haven't had. I went on rounds every morning. I came in early to do that. Um, we worked in a hospital-based practice. I spent a lot of time in the operating room, scrubbing in sometimes so I could see better. And a lot of these opportunities therapists today don't have. But as surgeons, when you work with therapists, if you can give the therapist as many opportunities to learn your thought processes and your decision-making, that'll help the therapist develop expertise. Um, as far as learning how to become a hand therapist, it was through patient contact and interaction with hand surgeons. Mm -hmm. I also spent some time um, in my early years going to continuing education courses. I participated uh, with my old anatomy professor in the Philadelphia hand meeting starting in 1976 and had the opportunity to learn a lot there at their continuing education program in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Then I it, uh, then I became involved in the 1990s after I became a certified hand therapist to, um, with, the, with the American Society of Hand Therapists and form collaborative relationships with other therapists across the country. And I think what you said is really important, Sue, is, is thinking about how the surgeons can offer us opportunities to learn what they're doing. I was helping to train one of our residents yesterday and talking a little bit about um, that as hand therapists, we learn a lot about rehab, but we don't learn a lot about surgery. So the more opportunities we can um, work with you and learn the surgical procedures will really help us make good clinical decisions um, for the patients. So I absolutely agree with you. So Sue, as an academic uh, PT and academic certified hand therapist, there's this balance point of teaching scholarship and service or teaching scholarship and practice. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the four universities you've worked at and how you balanced those things and how those helped you evolve as a hand therapist? Well, I always had the opportunity when I was in an academic position to stay in clinical practice. And if you are an OT or a PT on a faculty, you're expected to have expertise in two of three areas. Uh, one is teaching, one is clinical practice, and one is research. And because of my interests in movement and interaction with people, I chose teaching and uh, clinical practice as my two primaries. I was involved in some research in all the universities that I taught in, have mentored PhD students and master's students, but I'm not an R1 researcher. Mm -hmm. There are therapists who have taken that career path, like Joy McDermott, who is primarily a researcher who has had clinical experience in the past. Um, at the University of Pennsylvania, um, part of my teaching there in, involved teaching upper extremity anatomy to the physical therapy students and to the occupational therapy students. We had that together. And that really helped form my, um, a better understanding of what I was doing as a therapist. Like I have said to many of my patients, I can visualize you without your skin on. <laughs> I think, and I can visualize you in transection or in bleak view. 
So I think that's really important for the therapist in their education to learn as much anatomy as possible. I also was fortunate to have this, uh, the um, opportunity to do my master's degree in uh, physiology at a medical school. And during that time period, we had to teach anatomy, not anatomy, physiology labs to the medical students. And a lot of them were animal-based labs. So as part of my education there, I had um, animal surgery courses. And it really made me strong as a therapist because I learned a lot about tissue healing. Interesting. And a lot about complications that can occur postoperatively. So if a therapist can have any opportunity to get into anatomy labs, and, uh, and into the OR, it's really helpful for us to understand how a patient recovers. Absolutely. Sue, talk a little bit about mentoring. I think this becomes a really important concept in thinking about mentors as not being necessarily people that even are in your building. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, the evolution of hand therapists that you have mentored and how that has um, enhanced your own career, but also the careers of others? I think that I began working with therapists who wanted to be hand therapists in the mid-1980s before there was the hand certification exam. And uh, what I would do is have them co-treat patients with me at that point in time. And there were, patient, there were therapists who were on site where I was. The mentoring that I did of therapists who I didn't work with was through continuing education and association lectureships. Um, I also had the opportunity in other clinics that I worked in to mentor therapists um, through the hand uh, electives that we developed in the physical therapy curriculum to develop an initial interest um, with that. Ken Flowers, who was the second editor of the journal Hand Therapy, and I used to teach a hand electives to students first at Temple University and then at Hahnemann. And from that, there were students who became interested in becoming hand therapists. Probably one of the better known ones is Paula Steo, who was the next editor of the Journal of Hand Therapy and has done quite a bit of research in our area. Um, over the years, I've also had the opportunity to um, mentor therapists in other countries uh, through the work we do in Guatemala Healing Hands Foundation. When Becky and I first started going there, I think you went a couple years before me, we first started going there, the therapist education at that point was on a technical level for three years after high school and then started to evolve toward the bachelor's degree. And we developed a, a program to talk about hand therapy and teach in the universities in Guatemala City. So those are some of the opportunities that we've had. It's also important when you go to conferences to develop relationships with other therapists there. Many therapists go to conferences to collect continuing education units. And when I realized how important it was to develop other relationships when you're there, ongoing relationships that you don't get while someone is giving a lecture, I came up with a BEU, which is the Bar Educational Unit, <laughs> to be able to sit in a lobby of a hotel or at a restaurant or a bar and exchange information and mentor people in that time period. Yeah. And Sue, your work in Guatemala with those therapists has been instrumental in helping them advance their skills and really connecting with those universities there has just been invaluable. So great, you know, amazing gratitude for that. So let's it's really been fun. Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, so let's get into it. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to present um, two operative cases 
and two non-operative cases uh, just for conversation. And what Sue and I would like to do is present a little bit of information either about a diagnosis or a case. We'll talk a little bit about the therapy indications and then talk about some key points and really some fundamental concepts around this building a bridge between therapists and surgeons. And so we're gonna start with an um, elbow fracture dislocation case. Um, Dr. Mudgall um, from Mass General actually offered us this, these slides. So thank you for those, for the um, photos. What you see here is the terrible triad injury. We've got an elbow dislocation. We've got a radial head fracture and um, we have a coronoid fracture. So kind of the typical terrible triad with a potential medial collateral and or lateral collateral ligament injury. And so what we see here are the post-op photos. Um, you've got the ORIF of the ulna and the radial head, um, the, radio, the radial head repl replacement, excuse me. And um, so then we're thinking kind of into our post-op. Sue, is there anything you wanna comment on when you look at this x-ray? Yeah, I, I think it's important for the therapist to have the opportunity to see the x-rays or the MR or the CT because um, what we see when the person comes to our office is a swollen, sometimes discolored elbow with an incision. And we don't get to see the extent of uh, the hardware that was put in. And I think if we get to see that, we have an idea, a better idea of how the soft tissues were manipulated and what the potential of problems uh, may be that the patient would have that we could then report back to you. And also it's important to be able to let the patient know that we've had that type of communication with the surgeon and that we're in this together. Absolutely. And so, Sue, if we move into some therapy recommendations, and I'm going to leave this slide up while we talk about the therapy recommendations. Um, we know that typically post-op, this is a, a long arm posterior splint, typically between 80 and 90 degrees of flexion with the pronation supination position dependent on what ligaments were repaired. And so we know if it's a lateral collateral, an isolated lateral collateral, we're going to put the patient into full pronation. And as we move into either combined and or medial collateral, we're gonna move into a neutral position and or a supinated position. So in those immobilization weeks, those kind of first six weeks post-op, what are your thoughts about those initial, the initial things you're most concerned about that you're helping the patient to work through? Okay, I, when I, when I uh, look at someone who's had an elbow fracture dislocation or a fairly severe injury like this, I think about um, what I can do to help promote stability, mm -hmm. increase mobility at the same time. And oftentimes that's a conundrum with the elbow because people can have stiff and unstable elbows concurrently. Mm -hmm. And also about irritability. What I can do to re help reduce the inflammation and help reduce the swelling to help promote tissue healing and ease of mobility. Mm -hmm. I also, um, uh, have to have discussions with the patient about the type of orthosis or splint they may be wearing and for them to understand why they have to wear it and why it might seem a little bit uncomfortable in the beginning, but we'll be there to coach them along the way. And I think, Sue, I also look at this and I think about how hard these splints are to make and to make them comfortably. When you think about this hardware being so external um, and think about that hard plastic that we have to put around the elbow sometimes, I think we're really trying to create something that's comfortable that they can be compliant with um, while still, like you said, trying to balance that mobility and stability. So absolutely. Um, and, and, and I think, and a point, that, that's a good point that you brought up uh, regarding fabricating and applying an orthosis for somebody. 
-hmm. because the stereotypical hand therapy clinic has a table, mm -hmm. therapist on one side, patient on the other. And what is really needed in a typical hand therapy clinic is an area for the patients to lie down because it makes it much easier to make a lot of orthotic devices and also to take off bandages for the if you're the first person to, to do that post-surgery because you can get the person in better position when they're supine. And also, sometimes when bandages first come off, the patient goes from erect to supine involuntarily. And we would like to prevent that from happening. Absolutely. That's a great point, Sue. Well, yeah. Our work environment is really important. You can't just stick a hand therapist in a corner with the table. <laughs> That's a great point. So Sue, some of our big questions when we think about these elbow fracture dislocations and main points that we wanted to touch on tonight. Talk to me a little bit about, in these cases, what the surgeon knows and what the therapist knows. The surgeon knows what the original injury was. Um, and we find that out from interviewing the patient as they did, but they see the person that's come into the emergency room or there into their office after they've been in the emergency room. Um, they also know how the anatomy has been altered. Mm -hmm. So we don't like there to be any surprises mm -hmm. when they come to therapy. If the ulnar nerve has been relocated to a different position, that's important to know. Because as we know with elbow fracture dislocations, there can be irritability of the ulnar nerve in a cubital tunnel. Um, the therapist knows how to make someone move basically, or how to encourage them to move, or how to encourage them to not move through range of motion activities that may be dangerous to the recovery, mm -hmm. or not facilitate a very good recovery. We know the techniques to apply, to encourage somebody to move, to teach them how to move, to help them return to activity. So while the surgeon and therapist both have the same goal, ultimately to have the patient recover functionally the best they can without complications, we have different skill sets that we bring technically to make that happen. Excellent. Talk to me about therapists being teachers, not cheerleaders. I think this is such a good point. And unfortunately, with the, the like you said, they're 85% OTs. I think the number of females in our profession would be much higher than 85%. Um, talk to me a little bit about us being teachers and not just um, you know that old kind of thought of us just cheerleading our patients along. And when I think of being a cheerleader, I think of waving something around. And, I, and actually, I never thought of myself as a cheerleader. I have heard this from a surgeon. You know, that, that, that we need to send the person to therapy because they can be good cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, a lot of what we do is teach the patient about um, the limitations they may have, the abilities they have to move forward, and about their post-op recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, something that is interesting with the therapist as a teacher is there is a dichotomy between what therapists are paid for and what we really do. We're paid for procedures, different codes. We're paid to do an exercise, we're paid to do a mobilization, we're paid to do a modality. But in fact, more of our time is usually spent in education of the patient. So there's a mismatch between how we're paid or reimbursed and what we really do. Absolutely. And hopefully as our coding systems and our billing 
evolves over the years, that may change. Uh, regarding patients on heroin, what the surgeon says. I am a 70-something neurotic Jewish woman who always worries when I go to the doctor and or to the dentist. And I only hear a very and retain a very small percentage of what my physician or dentist tells me when I walk out of the office. Mm -hmm. And I have a pretty good background in terminology and understanding of recovery and health. The patients, when they come in to see the physician after surgery, are terrified. And when they, when they see them before surgery, they're also terrified. So they probably don't retain very much of what is told to them. They get written instructions. The instructions may or may not be at the reading ability that they have. You know that there is a, not a very good relationship between information we provide the patient sometimes and their ability to understand those words. So we have a lot of time to spend with the patient to help teach them the milestones of recovery and what to expect during that time period. Absolutely, so Sue, if we wrap up this elbow fracture dislocation case and think about that piece about recovery, I mean, these patients are gonna be with us for a little while and elbows are hard to treat and it's hard to get the motion back. As you think about the recovery of the patient, what types of things are you telling them for these elbows that you find that they have forgotten or that they have not forgotten, I wouldn't even say, but missed because of their levels of stress or because of their levels of concern? Um, what types of take home messages are we giving these specific patients? Well, the biggest question that I get initially is what about the splint I have to wear? It's not comfortable. Yep. So I, I explain to them what to look for. Um, if they have uh, tingling that develops in their, in their fingers on this side or that side to let uh, us know. I also try to tell them um, about um, uh, how to do their exercises. Yeah. And in the old days, we used to give people a piece of paper with things written down or typed out and everybody got the same piece of paper and you circle things and check them off. What I did for about the last 10 or 15 years when I was in practice was um, uh, provide the patient photographs of themselves during their exercises. Yeah. In the old days, I would use a camera and upload it on my computer and give them a handout. In more modern days, I have them um, photograph and video their home programs um, so they can help remember them. And patients really appreciate that because they wanna see themselves and not a stick figure. It also helps them monitor their progress and changes in swelling because they can say, oh, my hand or wrist was, or elbow was really swollen when my therapist first gave me this and now look how well I'm doing. So it also helps them monitor their recovery. Does that answer your question, Becky? Yeah, absolutely. And I think these are good cases and it, it hits all of these points, Sue. When you think about having to progress somebody, someone by 10 degrees a week, when you think about having them do only certain amounts of range or not being able to fully pronate and supinate or waiting till the elbow flexion hits 90, I think there's really good points here about educating a patient of what is elbow flexion. And obviously we're bending our elbow, not flexing our elbow, but trying to help them understand what they're allowed to do and what, what they're not allowed to do in these cases can be difficult. And um, again, like you said, we've got to make sure they've heard us and we've got to make sure they understand what we've told them. And so I think that's where really teaching them and um, using education as our primary tool here is incredibly important. 
And I think it's also important, I have these two pencils, but they would be two pieces of cardboard that I would usually have. I, I make templates for the patients to show them how much motion they're allowed to have. Mm -hmm. I, tape, I tape the pieces together, hold it against their side as they're doing their exercises, take a picture, send the template home with them. So they get a photograph or a video and a template. So they can see what that means because Many people that we treat have had geometry and trig and understand angles and, and, and degrees, but a lot of people don't. So a visual and an actual construction of a piece is easy to use for the patient. Yeah. Wonderful. Dr. Rizzo, um, oh, go well, ahead. Um, one other thing that you asked me, Becky, was about how, um, what other information I give to the patient. We also have to discuss lifting, carrying, and weight-bearing activities. And when the person can weight bear is usually determined by what the physician tells me as far as the healing of the fracture site. Mm -hmm. So then again, we have to communicate back and forth because I am not a mind reader. Mm -hmm. I can't look through the skin, even though I tell my patients I can look through the skin and, and tell when the healing is complete. Absolutely. Dr. Rizzo, I'm not seeing any questions, but do you have any questions for us on this case? Oh, I have plenty. Uh <laughs> More, more philosophical than really. Uh, one of the things I'm always sort of jealous about with our therapists is how much time you get to spend with the patients versus us. And, and I'd, I'd love to hear, uh, Sue, your thoughts on the psychology of what we do and how you change your strategy based on how a patient reacts, whether they're um, you know, very timid or whether they're a little too ambitious or they don't quite understand as well in terms of, or you have concerns about compliance. Is it, is it, I mean, it's a, it's a big question in a way and it might be impossible to answer, but what, what tips would you have for younger therapists on um, how quickly it takes to identify patients and, and nudge them in a way that's going to give them the best possible outcome? Uh, that's a good question because, um, You'd like the person to be able to tell you as much as they can about themselves so you can understand what their values are and their culture is. Um, because oftentimes they're working with people who come from very different cultures than we do. And different cultures have different values about healing. So it's important to learn who that person is. And uh, uh, I think that the younger therapist really needs to just be a good listener, as the older therapist does too. You can't always have a preconceived notion of how someone is going to do uh, based on who you think they are. An example I'll, I'll give you is in my early 40s, I started um, uh, retaking horseback riding lessons and my instructor was in his 70s and we would ride on trails together and, and, uh, and he fell down and uh, fell off a horse one day and went to see a physician in the emergency room. And the physician told him to go home and rest. And he, all the physician saw was a 78 year old guy with two black eyes. And I saw my instructor at the stable uh, a couple days after that happened. And I said, well, you're not supposed to be here. They said to go home and rest. He said, I rested. I stayed home on Monday. I said, but you always stay home on Monday. But they never asked him at all um, about who he was and what he did. So I think the best thing the therapist can do early on is find out what the patient's values and expectations are. 
On the other hand, you don't want to open the door so they give you a narrative novelette and they've given you the equivalent of War and Peace or Gone with the Wind without you then being able to have time to teach them. Well, thanks, Sue. If there's more time, Becky, I could ask a couple more questions. Uh, um, one is about the logistics of how I think these share and learn opportunities between the therapist and the surgeon are, are tremendously helpful for me as a surgeon. Um, but I think a lot of it's about the layout, like you were alluding to the therapist in the corner of a room somewhere and just not having the space that they need to really do their job. But I, I like the, the accessibility that I have with our therapists. Um, at Mayo, it's sort of really nice. I, all I have to do is literally walk 20 or 30 feet and I'm right there in clinic. At Duke, it was a little bit harder for me. They were down the hall and, and probably a block away almost. And I, I think that um, it made it harder. Any, any barriers between us and communication has been something that I find challenging. Or do you think I'm overblowing that, that reality? Yeah, I, I think um, it's really nice to be in face if you can, but uh, I've, I've worked in a number of different practice settings, including university medical centers, where I was usually in a similar geographic area to the surgeon. But for the last number of years in, in practice, I was in private practice. And there were very easy ways to communicate with referring surgeons, this being one. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, I, and we all have busy schedules. You see far more patients a day than we do. We spend more time with the patient. And there are times when it's appropriate for us to communicate and not. So I think if you're working with a therapist who has their own practice and um, you want to communicate with them, the best thing to do is to ask them the best way to communicate. Okay. And if there's specific things that you need to know, let the therapist know right up front. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sending you this patient. Here's what I need to know. Please let me know if any of these things occur. And how do we communicate? And it, it's a challenge, even if you're working in the same office, it's a challenge because the therapist may be off treating somebody else who you didn't operate on, but one of your partners or associates operated on. Well, good news. I think I've opened up a little bit of a, uh, a flow of questions. <laughs> <laughs> From, I mean, uh, questions that are, are more to the point of our, our craft. Um, um, and Becky, please tell me before you run out of time or if you want to go to the next case. But um, Let's go ahead and go to the next case since we have four, and then we can come back. Dr. Rizzo, I'm just going to say one more thing. When I was a brand new therapist, the first surgeon I worked with, Dr. Philip Higgs, looked at me and said, I need you to know everything there is to know about rehab, and I'm going to count on you to educate me. I will tell you about surgery and you need to tell me about rehab. And it was a wonderful bit of autonomy that he handed me to say, if you come here fully prepared, I will allow you to participate in this process. And so there was also some accountability for me as a new therapist to do my homework. Um, and I loved that opportunity and it really helped me to develop those skills and um, really you know, stay in that work. So um, I would add that to what Sue said, that all of these things are, are really helpful. Um, but if, so Dr. Rizzo, we're gonna move on to the next case. And then if we have time at the end, can we come back? Does that sound okay? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. So, Sue, we're going to move on. Before we do that, there, there are two questions in the, in the open uh, Q&A that I think I can answer relatively fast. Okay. Is that okay? No, absolutely. One, 
One question is, do you use a static elbow splint or a hinged elbow splint? Um, it really depends on what you're trying to do and the quick answer is. Um, if I want to position a person at end range of motion, I may use a static elbow split, meaning one that doesn't have hinges. Um, it's more likely that I'll use a hinged elbow splint if one will fit and stay on the person because arms aren't always built like the splints are. If I want to, um, if the person generally is younger and very active and they're only allowed to move through a limited range of motion, then I can use a hinge. Um, next question is, how do you tackle chronic, uh, chronic regional pain syndrome? The best suggestion I have for you is to read the work of Tara Packham from Canada, Dr. Tara Packham. Um, I, um, if someone truly has the diagnosis and something that's not overdiagnosed, um, hopefully I, I tackle it by having um, a conversation with the surgeon about symptoms that I may be seeing in the patient. And oftentimes the first line of defense is to um, have a, um, a consultation with a pain management physician because mm -hmm. the pain somewhat has to be managed before I can work with the person. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right, so we're gonna move into one of our favorites, uh, thumb CMC osteoarthritis. We're gonna talk about non-operative management. So Sue, um, I'm gonna, switch to this slide. So do you want to start by telling me anything about the x-rays that we've put here? The one on the left definitely doesn't look normal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think that what's important, um, uh, why I put this up is because we're talking about thumb arthritis. Um, I think that it's important for the therapist uh, to realize how prevalent thumb CMC osteoarthritis is. And from a physical therapist perspective, um, uh, we oftentimes see patients who have hip and knee arthritis, but didn't always think about the middle-aged woman or the postmenopausal woman or perimenopausal woman who has a pain in their thumb that may also have osteoarthritis of the thumb. Um, when therapy management used to be done with somebody with thumb CMC arthritis, if it was a non-operative case, the choices that we had were some type of wrapper orthosis and assistive or adaptive devices to allow them to use their hand more freely. From work that's been done by surgeons like Amy Ladd, Elizabeth Haggard, um, and therapists like Virginia O'Brien and Jen Albrecht and Corey McGee, We've learned a lot about the importance of muscle re-education and retraining for someone who has CMC arthritis. And my go-to and many people's go-to is to have someone wear an orthosis, whether it be one that controls just the CMC joint or controls um, the CMC joint and the MP joint during activities that cause stress. Um, use um, tool modification of handles that may be larger so they can grip more carefully and also do stretching and stabilization exercises. The one picture that I put in here is a stretching exercise that we teach patients to help stretch the adductor pollicis which adaptively shortens as the thumb starts to come in toward the palm. 
to prepare the person to get their thumb in a proper position to move. And typically we will teach them how to do a C position and exercises to facilitate the first dorsal interosseous, which is also a stabilizer of the CMC. Awesome. And, and that's, that's a short version. And I can't say enough about this book. Um, this book to me is a simple book that um, patients can buy online, that your therapist can have in the clinic, but it is just full of wonderful, simple um, opportunities for both therapists and patients. And I love that it has a left-hand section and a right-hand section. So it's actually really, really user-friendly. They thought a lot about how to make it very easily accessible for everyone. So um, strongly recommend um, this book. And we're not, Sue and I are not connected to the book in any way, but it is a great little resource. So Sue, let's talk about, as we think about these bridges and optimal collaboration, this first point you make is don't refer the patient to the therapist when you've run out of options. Talk to us a little bit about what you think about that. Sure. I, I think that if you realize that someone's going to have a mobility or stability problem, uh, it's, I would recommend sending the patient to therapy for a consultation for some advice and dip, tips and recommendations on how to either stabilize their hand or wrist or elbow or mobilize it to have them be more functional. It's very difficult from a therapist and patient perspective to be the last thought that happens. If someone has a well-developed contracture, if they have something, if they've had a lot of medications for pain control and nothing's been effective, we're therapists, we're not magicians. We can't um, make someone better uh, as a last resort. Now, that being said, if you, as a surgeon, have run out of options, you've done a couple or few procedures, and that's as far as you can go, then the therapist may be able to come in and help you or help the patient with assistive devices and, and um, devices to compensate for the motions or activities that they've lost. Mm -hmm. So besides the book we just talked about, what other information do we provide? What other information would you provide as take home, Sue? I give them information on where they can buy product, whether it be a prefabricated wrap to use, mm -hmm. uh, how they can use heat at home mm -hmm. or cold at home, depending on what helps relieve their pain most, um, how to um, find information that's reliable. Um, I, and I'll talk about that with another case as we go along because um, people go out and try to find information on their own and oftentimes the information is not well vetted. So I try to teach them as much as they need to know to help manage, self-manage their problem. In the later years of my practice, I moved my, I shifted a lot of what I did away from me doing something to the patient to teaching the patient self-management with guidance by me. Yeah. yeah, it's like we tell our students, I can teach you in the classroom, but you've got to study at home to get the actual learning to occur. So yes, the work of learning and the work of therapy is yours to do. Tell me, Sue, what does the surgeon not know and what we don't know? What, what are these missing pieces um, that we both have? Well, I don't know exactly when the person um, may be a candidate for surgery because I haven't um, followed the patient sometimes as long as the surgeon has. Um, what the surgeon might not know is that I can be a really good referral source back to them. Mm -hmm. 
in my practice when I was in Ithaca, and we left Ithaca about two years ago. Uh, when I was in Ithaca, where I lived for a number of years, uh, there were patients who would come to see me who had never seen a physician about the problem. All physical therapists in the United States can see a patient without a physician referral for a restricted amount of time. And a lot of patients would either seek out a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or an alternative to a practitioner because they didn't want to go see a surgeon. And I would, uh, there were times when I felt that the patient could be a good candidate for successful surgery, but they didn't want to go to see the surgeon because all the surgeons want to do is operate, they say. And I would, I would discuss this with the patient and I would say, you know what, um, you have arthritis in your thumb now, as you know, because someone already told you that. And you might not need surgery. You might someday need surgery. So why don't you go meet a surgeon and have them do a baseline exam and then they'll already know you. Mm -hmm. And then if you continue to have problems, you can go back to them. And, I, and typically I wouldn't say that until I thought a patient was probably going to be a pretty good candidate for surgery. And in my small collection of N equals one data, me being the solo practitioner, about 50% of the patients who would do this came back signed up for surgery mm -hmm. because there really wasn't much that I had to offer them. Right. And I think something that's really important that we may see more as a therapist don't want to go and see a surgeon. On the other hand, if the patient is too excited to see a surgeon. It may be somebody who's had multiple surgeries and is surgeon seeking. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's move on to another um, non-operative diagnosis, and then we'll take questions when we're done with that one. So let's, start, let's talk a little bit about carpal tunnel syndrome, Sue. And um, I love this slide. So tell us a little bit about where we're going here. Well, I think that many of us um, who see carpal tunnel syndrome, or have double crush that also involves carpal tunnel syndrome, may want to run out a door because sometimes there are big challenges in um, not necessarily making the diagnosis, but in, um, in offering patients options for treatment. And uh, from a therapist's perspective, we learned that there are certain positions, the same way the surgeon also knows, which will aggravate the median nerve and certain that don't. So if we look at the carpal tunnel in this transection, uh, and um, the transection is taken at the level of the hook of the hamate, that part of the hook of the hamate. When I think about it as a therapist, I, I, I think to myself, well, there's only so much space for that nerve, nerve to live. And what can I teach the patient uh, about positioning their hand and using their hand that they won't have an increase in that pressure? So. When I think about someone with carpal tunnel syndrome, I think about what I can do to help reduce the pressure in the carpal tunnel through an orthosis in, in neutral rotation for them to wear at night and teach them to avoid activities like trying to strengthen their hand with grippers and putties. But that being said, there is so much money that's been spent on carpal tunnel syndrome over the years that, um, it's a challenge. I mean, I used to have a slide with a whole list of all the options of laser and magnets and iontophoresis and all these things that we know that don't have an effect on carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm -hmm. So the challenge as a therapist is people's expectations of all these treatments that they think and they want. Yeah. And Sue, so, in fact, what we do is very simple. 
So I'm going to segue off that point of the number of articles and the number of uh, the amount of research and the number of options that we think are available for carpal tunnel and then trying to weed out actually what does work. So talk about when we think about collaboration, you know, this first point of reading, we read your journals, please read ours. Talk a little bit about the journals that we have that have really dug down deep into this, but also we're going to get into a research, which is clinical practice guidelines. And so um, talk to me a little bit about this. Okay. And, and I really, um, I really think it's important for both of us to look at each other's journals. In the 90s, I worked at Temple University with Scott Cozen when he was still treating adults. And he would come in in the morning to clinic and he would say, oh, did you read this in the journal last night? And I'm thinking, what's he talking about? And he was only referring to the journal of hand surgery or JBGS, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. And I would say, yes, I read my journal last night. But I also had a subscription to the Journal of Hand Surgery, but he didn't know that I had that. So I knew what he was talking about. But with tongue and cheek, I would say, well, what are you talking about, Scott? And I think it's really important that you are aware of the information, the current information that therapists are reading or should be reading. And for the hand therapist, the Banner Journal is a journal of hand therapy which is um, edited by Joy McDermott, who's a, a physiotherapist from Canada. Also, um, as a physical therapist, one of my sources is the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy that does have articles related to the upper extremity. And also one of the highest ranked therapy journals is physiotherapy. It's an open access journal now. Um, it is uh, published by the um, Australian Physiotherapy Association. And it has a fairly large impact factor. Both the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy and Physiotherapy have high impact factors. Uh, another journal that I read is the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, which also has a high impact factor. And all of us have higher impact factors than our hand surgery and hand therapy journals do. Mm -hmm. So Sue, when we get into therapy recommendations, um, I, I was getting, I was thinking about the slide when you were talking about money flying out the window or all the different things we can try and, and how much we could bill for. What would you say are the most, and we'll get into the clinical practice guidelines for carpal tunnel in just a second, but what do you think is most effective for patients with carpal tunnel and what do we have evidence to support? If someone does not have um, atrophy of the thinar eminence, uh, they haven't totally lost sensation, uh, then I recommend that they sleep in orthosis at night mm -hmm. and one that keeps their wrist in a neutral position. Mm -hmm. Many times patients go to the pharmacy and buy a, um, a splint mm -hmm. out of the package and they're called carpal tunnel splints in, by many manufacturers. But those particular splints have a that holds the wrist into extension. And not only does the extended position increase carpal tunnel pressure, but direct pressure on the palm over the carpal tunnel increases pressure. So I, um, if someone is already wearing splints, I ask them to bring them into the clinic so I can see them. And I ask them to see how they put them on because just because someone has a splint, it doesn't mean they know how to put it on properly. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes what I do, um, if someone comes in with one of the prefabs that has the metal bar in, I take it out. The metal bar usually has a nice little cup in and I tell them that's really nice. They can use it as a yogurt spoon. <laughs> and then I take a piece of thermoplastic material and put it uh, um, flat out back into the splint and let them wear the splint. Mm -hmm. 
I also teach them um, activities to glide the median nerve through the carpal tunnel. And if you look into the therapy uh, literature and some of the less referee journals, you'll see recommendations of doing all these nerve glides and slides and moving the whole extremity. We know from the work that I think that Bob Zabo did a number of years ago, that just flexing and extending the fingers is enough to make the median nerve glides with the carpal tunnel. Mm -hmm. So I teach, and, and I really don't believe that this activity will help um, uh, cure the problem. Yeah. What it does is it limits the patient from keeping their hand in a static position that they may have been working in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I, I recommend things to reduce pressure in the carpal tunnel. And, and they don't need to come to see me more than once or twice to do that. Exactly. They like uh, two visits uh, to me are more ideal because the first visit, they're usually overwhelmed with the information. And the second visit, they can come back and ask questions and I can modify the way they wear their splint or the activities that they do. Um, there are clinical practice guidelines that the American Physical Therapy Association and the American Occupational Therapy Association have been developing across all types of diagnoses. And in the American Physical Therapy Association, we have a lot of subspecialty areas. And one is the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy and the other is the Academy of Hand and Upper Extremity Therapy. And those two sections with combination have about 20,000 members, I think, 20,000 therapists. And we have been developing clinical practice guidelines using the ICF terminology so we can speak across um, disciplines. The one on carpal tunnel syndrome, which is led by Mia Erickson, who's a PT who teaches at the University of Western Virginia, um, was done uh, on uh, hand pain and sensory deficits in carpal tunnel syndrome. It's a well-vetted uh, procedure. Uh, standardized forms are used to assess the literature and then recommendations based on level of evidence are come up are developed and with carpal tunnel syndrome uh, the clinical practice guideline is strongest on wearing an orthosis second strong on doing some exercises and activity modification and doesn't have very good things to say about modalities Sue, I can't speak enough as an occupational therapist about the strength of the American Physical Therapy, uh, Physical Therapy Association's combined sections meeting and these subgroups and the power of these kind of documents. And so hopefully these are in the hands of surgeons. Um, are, these in the, are these published in the journal, Sue, or are these behind the firewall of the APTA website? They're in, these the, are journal. in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. Awesome. And if you go into that journal, the clinical practice guidelines are all open access. Wonderful. So I know there are a number of orthopedic surgeons who operate on things other than hands in this group. Yeah. And you'll see guidelines for managing different shoulder conditions and back pain and knee conditions and foot and ankle. Fabulous. Uh, let's stop for a second, Dr. Rizzo. Oh, sorry, one more thing, Sue. Teach the patient where to find reliable information. Speak to this for us. There are people who will come into your clinic, as you know, and you can I, there are probably about 100 some people smiling there right now when they think about the stacks of papers that patients come in with, the information they've collected before the visit to tell you what their diagnosis is and what the treatment is. <laughs> I think it's really important and incumbent upon all of us to provide the patients with a place that they can go find information. 
And I keep uh, uh, either an iPad or a laptop by my side when I'm uh, seeing a patient, not necessarily for my documentation, even though that does help a little bit, but more so I can show the patient um, sites to go to find reliable information. And my go-to places typically are the hand societies, uh, Move Forward PT, which is a whole patient education thing from the American Physical Therapy Association. Uh, a very big go-to place for me is the Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. University of Washington Department of Orthopedic Surgery. And then I take them down to look at some sites that are a little less well-vetted that may talk about magnets and crazy wands and things like that that you can use to treat uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm -hmm. Dr. Rizzo, we're gonna hand the mic to you for some questions. Do you have any questions for us or questions from the, um, from the question box? I have one selfish question. Um, and then I have some questions from the panel. Um, one, one question I had about basal thumb arthritis. Um, MCP hyperextension, either pre or postoperatively, um, how successful and when should I refer, if I see someone post-op LRTI who's developing some MCP hyperextension, how worried should I be and how successful could you be in helping curb that tendency? That's a good question. Um, from a mechanical viewpoint, uh, the way to help curb that tendency is to position the MP joint in some flexion. Um, or to say, I've, I've done that and you're not going to get a sustained effect, which might mean that you may go in and do another procedure or have done it in the first time to begin with. Yeah, these are tough things and we try to fabricate splints that bring them out to help, but you know, I, it's a struggle, especially right. if you're ligamentously lax and, and um, you know, sometimes it's related to the stiffness from not moving at the base. They may have had none preoperatively, but then postoperatively they're, they're sort of falling into that because of the tendency if they can't get their thumb away to want to hyperextend at that MCP joint. You know, some type of dorsal block mm -hmm. added into a splint. And, and many times the people have their procedure because they have a lot of pain mm -hmm. and they're just screaming uncle at this point. And if their pain is relieved uh, by your surgery and by my therapy postoperatively, they may be willing to uh, live for a while wearing a splint for activities that cause them to go into hyperextension. I don't know an exercise to do that can make that better, but I can provide a mechanical block to help position the thumb in, in a better post. It's interesting in that some patients get it, they don't mind because you're right, their pain's gone. Other people really have problems with the visual appearance and sometimes talking them off of that concern even though their pain's gone is difficult. Right, it is. It is. And that's where we can both work together to mm -hmm. give a similar message. Because I think that sometimes patient expectations exceed what we can do. Yeah. Yeah, that's so a, that's why you know it's it's important for us to have a dialogue so we're on the same page and give the patient the same message. And and not for me to say, oh that surgeon he or she really screwed up or that dumb therapist, what did they do? 
Dr. Rizzo, I would add, Sue mentioned before, and I think this is an important point, because you're talking about the EPL. You know, we know that it has a really great mechanical advantage to produce MP hyperextension to create a web space for the patient. And so mm -hmm. what's happening is that really long and robust EPL is battling the adductor polysis. Yeah. So my other question would be pre-op, you know, trying to do a good assessment or asking your therapist to assess the shortness and tightness of the adductor polysis in comparison of that mechanical advantage of the EPL. And if there's any way to work out some of that adductor polysis tightness or shortness prior mm -hmm. to surgery when you're trying to recreate the web space, because we know the EPL can do it and do it well. It's just that that's that counterpoint of fighting against that really large, robust adductor polysis. So I've talked to you many times on these webinars about letting me see the patient before surgery or, you know, trying to even just do a really nice thorough assessment to say, hey, if you give me a couple of weeks to try to work on this, it might make a better outcome for all of us. That's a great and, question. And the, and the very first picture that I showed with, with the adducted thumb, um, that's why we work on trying to get the thumb out and work on the adductor polysis. You can also teach the patient how to do this on their own, but typically they're gonna to have to do it with their index finger or middle finger because they can't do the stretch with their thumb because typically they also have arthritis in their other yeah. thumb. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks, Sue, that's great. Uh, one other question on point, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. Briefly, what would you say works your usual treatment plan and, and do you, um, I think you answered this in part, do you do ongoing therapy or one time, it sounds like you do a two-time visit kind of thing. Two-time visit if I can. Um, mm -hmm. My usual treatment plan is, is again to teach the person how to, how to work in positions that aren't going to make their symptoms worse. Okay. And that can be done through an orthosis and, and through visual instruction. And also, I see a nod um, uh, from Marcia Lawrence on here. Marcia was also one of the co-developers of the um, of the clinical practice guideline for carpal tunnel syndrome. Thanks for coming tonight, Marcia. Thank you, Sue. La the last point I think is maybe beyond our realm, but uh, we can discuss. It's a, a hand surgeon from Indonesia who uh, has uh, works with a hand therapist. I mean, works with a. a an occupational therapist, a hand therapist, but is, uh, is not certified and was querying about uh, the opportunity for a um, uh, studying abroad or here in, in the States and having, or having a fellowship. I think, uh, Dr. Karna, I think we could direct you. Uh, there's a variety of different places, but I welcome your thoughts. So. Um, there are, uh, I know there is uh, some funding available through a what the surgeons had is a reverse fellowship through the American Association for Hand Surgery that Don Lalonde established. And Becky can speak to it better now because she's on uh, one of the committees related to that, mm -hmm. uh, about whether there's funding available to have a therapist come and study from another country in the state somewhere. Yeah, as part of the American Association for Hand Surgery, we're actually working in conjunction with the American Society for Hand Therapists to create a really a total package of reverse fellowships where we would have people both going to places to train and then actually bringing people over to the states for training. Um, right now, a lot of that work is on hold, but if there's a way to get contact information, I'd be happy to connect um, this doctor with, with us to, to just talk about that and connect to resources. So um, I'm not sure the best way to do that, but I'm sure we can figure something out. Vicki, might I interject? And also, in the world of Zoom, yeah. There are a lot of collaborative um, types of instructional uh, programs that are going on. Absolutely. And anybody in the world can join in to many of them. Yeah. Thank you again, Sue. Thank you, Becky.
Dr. Michael, you wanted to say something? Yeah. Um, is it okay for that uh, physician from Bali, Indonesia, to just get in touch with you directly? Absolutely. I'm going to put, I'm going to answer that in just a second. And, yeah. uh, and you yeah. can just send them your email ID privately. You got it. They can get in touch with you and take the discussion further. Sue, I, uh, that was fantastic. But you made a remark there, which kind of fell by the wayside because you had a little tongue in cheek as I saw you smiling when you made it. Uh, you said something about CRPS being overdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. And um, it just kind of uh, fell by the wayside. And I couldn't agree with you more. And do you, where do you think the problem is? Is it, is it hand surgeons who overdiagnose it? Is it therapists? Or are we co-culprits? I think we're in this together, but I'll give you an example. When I was working in Ithaca, there was a great young hand surgeon, Kim Carney Young, who uh, worked for the hospital, and she would refer a lot of patients to my private practice. And she, um, she called me one day, she said, I don't know what to do, because this therapist has, is diagnosing all my patients with complex regional pain syndrome. So I said, well, why don't you call him up and ask him what's the most recent continuing education course he took? And it was a weekend course on CRPS. So, you know, as surgeons get excited when you go to um, the academy meetings or to the hand society meetings and you see new products or new diagnoses or new things, therapists get excited about that too. So sometimes they're overzealous therapists that try to make a diagnosis. And sometimes there are physicians, not necessarily surgeons who overdiagnose uh, complex regional pain syndrome. Back in the day when it was called reflex sympathetic dystrophy, and I was practicing in Philly, there was a very well-known neurologist, I won't mention any names, who overdiagnosed the problem and would tell patients that if they had the condition, be careful, it will spread. So, you know, it, it's from the therapy end and, and the surgery end both. And then there are people that really have symptoms that are either similar to what falls in the basket of CRPS or not, that do very well with pharmacologic management. And I don't know that any of us really understand why that happens sometimes. What's Let your feeling? Ask you one more thing. I, uh -huh. I understand you, you briefly touched on the cultural aspects of patient's recovery mm -hmm. and um, injury behavior, illness behavior varies from culture to culture. So also recovery behavior varies from culture to culture. Yes, it does. And how do you address that? Because uh, sometimes it seems to me that you have the wonderful reconstruction radiographically, but mm -hmm. the patient just seems to have difficulty getting better. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hate to sound like I'm full of hubris, but it just seems to me that it just, the, the, the ball is not being moved forwards. Right, and, it, and it's something that none of us as therapists or surgeons used to pay attention to. Uh, it's important to find out a little bit about the culture that the patient's from and, and what their, their expectations for healing are. Some people from certain cultures are afraid to tell you and you need to be aware of that and have that discussion with the surgeon and problem solve how to do that together. In therapy education, and I don't know as much about current medical school education, but in current therapy education, there are courses in cultural competency. And there's a lot of emphasis put on that in our curriculum. Mm -hmm. So it's a learning process for all of us. And what would you suggest? 
So let me, uh, so let me be a little provocative here. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a difference between Caucasian and non-Caucasian cultures? Um, sometimes. Yeah. It de- but it depends on the Caucasian uh, culture, um, because they're different Caucasian cultures. Yes. I, mean, I already told you I came from, I'm uh, basically an erotic old Jewish lady. <laughs> and, and there's somebody who are stoic, white American of Swedish descent. And that's not me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Caucasian versus any other color spectrum or ethnic spectrum all has their own idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. You know, neurosis and Jewish lady would never ever fit in the same sentence with me anyway. But. <laughs> Yes, my physician. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Becky, back to you. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Muggle, I'll say one more thing. We are in the process of building a diversity, equity, and inclusion. We call it Inclusive Excellence at Elon, and we're building a co-curriculum for all of our PA, PT, and nursing students. So in addition to their content work, we're really kind of lifting up above to say, what is our role in addressing cultural competence? What is our role in addressing health disparities? Um, what is our role in creating culturally competent healthcare providers and, and using interprofessional education to kind of achieve those goals? And so you're seeing that more and more as a part of what we're doing. And, it's, and for me, it's exciting work. It's, it's helping us to be better at the things we do. So, um, and, and part of it is, is part of our culture as therapists. I mean, if, uh, if you look at the demographics of people who are OTs and PTs, you see a lot of a lot of Caucasian faces. Yep. Um, when I taught at Temple, we used to get national awards um, because of the kind of school that Temple is mm-hmm. for uh, cultural diversity yep. in our students. So you know there are people. Um, there's not that much of a mixed demographic of people that enter PT and OT programs, unless it might be a program in a big city. And we all need to encourage more of that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, there's, uh, there's an interesting uh, remark here from one of the hand surgeons, a dear old friend of mine, in terms of uh, cultural differences, the difference between guilt-based and shame-based cultures. Mm. And I thought that's it's a very interesting observation. But there is a, there's a large grain of truth to that. Um, and that being said, Becky, we should talk more offline about this because the AO International and AO North America have a, an initiative on opportunity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah, and I'd be happy to, uh, you know, work with you on that. So, Would love, that yeah, thank you so much. That would be fabulous. Yes, that's a great thing. My my brother-in-law is an ethicist and philosopher, and uh, one of his expertise is is in understanding shame and guilt. Huh. Interesting. We've got one case left. We're over time a little, so we've got about seven or eight minutes left to try to tackle this case, Sue. So, uh, Dr. Mudgal, are we good to finish up this case? Absolutely. You can take another eight, ten minutes, yes. Uh, It won't take that long. So, Sue, I did not inform everybody that Sue is also kind of on her second career now, so she's getting a Master of Fine Arts in Photography and Book Arts, and so this is one of her photos, um, and they've been kind of throughout this presentation. So, Sue, kudos on another degree, Um, and you said you have a year left? Yeah, and then I'll be finished with college. <laughs> I, I'm in my 15th year of college right now. <laughs> so Dr. Kyle Bikel shared this um, awful case with us. And basically what you see here is a woman who fell off a stepladder, um, highly comminuted fracture of the radial metaphysis and articular surface um, of the radius with marked dorsal and proximal displacement. You also see this um, displaced ulnar styloid fracture. 
The unfortunate part about this case is that this woman um, had surgery here and what you see is an ORIF um, with an allograft that was placed. And if you look at the picture on your right, you see a very prominent ulnar head. And here's a video of her about six months after her surgery. And you'll see this really um, incredible level of DRU, DRUJ instability um, that she can actually kind of engage right there in front of our eyes. And so um, basically uh, Dr. Bakel went in and he uh, did a re revision ORIF. Um, he did a bone graft. Um, it's basically wrist arthroscopy, hardware removal. He did an osteotomy with a lengthening and an ORIF with an allograft. Um, he did an open repair of the TFCC and pinned the DRUJ in neutral, putting the patient in a long arm cast for about six weeks. And so I thank Dr. Bakel for this great case. Um, Sue, as you look at this case, um, what are your immediate thoughts from a therapy perspective? Okay, I, I believe you told me that the person had therapy the first go around. Yep, six months of it. Okay, can you go two slides back? Yeah, absolutely. This one? Yes, and just play the video again? Yes. Okay, so when you're dealing with the case of instability at the distal radio ulnar joint, uh, the person apparently went to therapy for a while, was that correct? Yeah, for six months of therapy after the first operation. And I don't know if the instability was early on or developed, but from my perspective, if someone came into my office looking like this, I would, my goals would be to stabilize the wrist through an orthosis, facilitate use of the fingers, and call the surgeon. Because I don't really have a lot to offer in a case like this. I mean, ideally, when I think about what stabilizes the distal radio ulnar joint, if I could figure out a way to make the pronated quadratus really important and have it stabilize the DRUJ, I'd be, I, there'd be lines at my door instead of a Brian Adams door. <laughs> so I think that it's really important for the therapist and surgeon in this case to communicate, to look at what's realistic goals. Um, oftentimes a surgeon won't wanna go back in and rightly so and operate right away. So as a therapist, my role would be to provide stability and allow the person to use their fingers. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so this is a combined TFCC repair and a, you know, ORF of a distal radius fracture. So then we get into, you know, the nuances of TFCC repair types of therapy and the nuances of distal radius fracture type of therapy, knowing that pronation and supination will become essential. Um, I found it interesting that pre-op, before the second operation, the patient only had 20 degrees of wrist flexion and 30 degrees of supination, so very limited motion. Um, and this is actually only a 39-year-old woman um, that this case was, so I thought that was very interesting. So as we wrap up this evening, we had kind of some final questions and thinking about a, a complex case like this with two surgeries. These questions of what information we need from the surgeon, what information the surgeons need from us, why we may need to speak with them. What would you say about those concepts? Well, I think I addressed that a little bit already, yep. or quite a bit already, but um, we really need to know what, how you alter the anatomy and how the injury altered the anatomy. Mm -hmm. And from there, we should be able to develop a reasonable plan of mobility for the person. Mm -hmm. We also need to know when you feel healing is sufficient for weight-bearing activities. Um, because we just don't use our hand like this. You see a lot of people taught exercises that do this and that. Well, we use our hand more in weight bearing than we do in waving in crowds, unless we're running for political office or saying goodbye to our kids or grandkids when they leave. 
So we really need to know when it's okay to move to the next milestone. Absolutely. The information that you need to know from us, in my opinion, I'd like to hear your opinion, is how the patient is reaching those milestones and when there's difficulty in our ability to progress the patient forward, whether it be the psychological issues that you were discussing before, the cultural issues, or mechanical problems uh, or fail to heal that the patient has. Mm-hmm. And so I would uh, add, the word that I often used in my early career was integrity. Um, mm-hmm. When I think about TFCC and I think about the integrity of the repair, um, that information I don't think is easy to glean from an x-ray and it's certainly not yeah. easy to glean from an OR note. And so when I think about why I may need to speak with you, understanding the integrity of the TFCC repair and how I should progress rehab would be a really important component for me to understand. We also, have to, we also have to be aware of other systemic conditions that the patient has that may uh, affect healing. Um, back in the day when I first started practicing, it was very obvious to tell which of my patients had rheumatoid arthritis and which didn't. But because of disease-altering medications now, I can't always tell unless someone is, you know, of course I get that during the interview with the person, but it, it's important for me to understand something about the integrity of their tissues whether they have diabetes or some other medical condition, that's important for me to know. Tell me about being cautious about prescriptions for therapy. Cautious about how they're written. Because (laughs) um, one one of the frustrations of a therapist and the surgeon, I can hear the surgeon rolling his or her eyeball saying, oh, that therapist called me again. Or the therapist picking up this prescription and saying, what? So I, I think that an important conversation to have is what, what expectations are for prescriptions um, if, the, if the patient needs a prescription to come to therapy. Um, when you're looking at reimbursement from certain um, uh, uh, insurance providers like Medicare, if something's written on a prescription in, a de- in great detail and the therapy note doesn't match that, it's going to be denied. So there's too much detail and too little detail. I gave you the example in the beginning of one of the hand surgeons that checked all the boxes and then the other one that would send somebody that says right arm pain. So there needs to be enough information to communicate but not limit what what either of us are doing. So tell me about ways we make the patients move. By making them understand um, uh, what their uh, condition is by telling them um, how it's safe to move and progress their activity. And a lot of this is education and saying to them at this point, you can do this or this point, you can do that. Um, Andrea Bruder, who's a physiotherapist from, um, from Australia, did her doctoral work in, uh, in the effect of exercise and home instruction in, in recovery following wrist fractures. And one of the most key uh, important factors that she found is that Uh, The patient just needs good advice on when they can move and when they can do certain activities. We also have ways to make the patient move by reducing their fear, by some of the manual techniques that we use on certain patients, with certain patients, and also um, in being able to position the person in a way that will facilitate motion. And the best example I can give right off the top of my head at this time of night is if someone has um, a stiff elbow and you're trying to increase elbow extension, and there's not a mechanical block to extension, 
We need to get the patient to lie down in a supine position to exercise because we know the supine position does not cause contraction of the biceps as much as standing up trying to do the same exercise. So the positional variations. And Sue, I think you circled back really importantly to where we started, which was education. Um, our final slide here, I love this as our kind of, as we wrap this up. And so I think of the surgeon and therapist being hand in hand and trying to you know, create the best outcomes for our patients possible. Any last words, Sue, anything you wanna leave us with? We've got about a minute to go. Um, please talk to us and let us talk to you because it's all about making the patient better. And uh, if people could type in the chat box um, where they're from and what kind of practice they're in, that would really be useful for us as we get feedback on what we did tonight and what we may do in the future. Thank you. Awesome. So I'm gonna wrap this up for us here. Um, Sue, it's been an absolute privilege to hear from you tonight. Um, Sue has certainly been a thought leader and an absolute, you know, just wonderful mentor to so many of us in hand therapy. So Sue, many thanks for your time. Um, many thanks for coming to us from your home in Maine um, and all best wishes for your MFA and completing that and uh, love seeing all your wonderful photography. Thanks so much, everyone.